0: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter,
1: Captain Gabe
0: Dowrick. Captain, welcome aboard. Yeah, I've promoted Captain. myself.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Every year, Captain, you know that Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So today, these astronauts will ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two Twin Movies about an astronaut who uses science to stay alive when everything goes wrong on a doomed mission to Mars. It's the Martian versus approaching the unknown. Let
1: the engines begin. Okay, okay. Ben, Ben, Ben. Yes. You know what I really like about this episode? The way we have just the soothing sounds of a space shuttle just playing in the background through the whole thing. Just those little (laughs) beeps. Space. (laughs) Space. You know, it's really nice. I think uh, the listeners will appreciate that. It'll make for a relaxing episode.
0: Or those little uh, sort of piano needle needle drops that kind of basically permeate almost every space film by Ridley Scott,
1: particularly aliens. Oh, Oh, yeah. That's nice. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you enjoy that, listeners. (laughs) Uh,
0: As usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So, not that long ago, on the 30th of September 2015, The Martian was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. An astronaut becomes stranded on Mars after his team is shooting dead and must rely on his ingenuity to find a way to signal to Earth that he is alive. Gabe, did you originally catch The Martian when it was released at the flicks, And what was that
1: experience like? I did. And it was good. Uh, if... A little bit I don't quite remember. But, yeah, I mean, I remember seeing this movie at the cinema and it was like a packed full house and everyone enjoyed themselves. And I think I must have watched it a few times on DVD or VOD or whatever since. What about you?
0: Yeah, I caught myself at the cinema as well. I can't recall precisely the experience. The timing of the release of the film and the film itself isn't really a combination that kind of somehow ingrained itself in my mind as a cinematic experience. I love this movie We'll get to that in the review, but there was anything about the actual viewing experience um, beyond, I suppose, that vague sense of recalling it being big in scale on the screen, which always benefits a sci-fi movie set in space or on a new planet. But, yeah,
1: beyond that, nothing that particularly – Sticks as a splinter in my mind about the experience. <laughs> you, you didn't have to shush anybody. You didn't get into a uh, into a into a fight down at the concession stand.
0: Well, podcast listeners, Gabe is only half joking here because I've been known to become very testy with uh, you know chatty, uh, disruptive, uh, texting type other patrons around me. It drives me crazy. It ruins the movie experience. It does takes me out of the immersion. But no, there is no sort of scarring story associated with this particular film. Um, However, if we were to a twin movies and it's based on Fast and Furious 5, Fast 5, I have a 40-minute perler of a story to tell you about that experience, which did not end well at all. Yeah, right. And by that, I mean not for the person talking next to me. But let's just say that for another time.
1: Yeah, your, your, your relationship with your um, partner was never the same again. Pretty much, <laughs> she, pretty much. She's, she was a little chatty. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's interesting, actually, just before we move um, uh, the, the Martian, there's a whole bunch of kind of Marzi movies that came out and weirdly in my mind I sometimes confuse parts of The Martian with parts of Interstellar, which was that a year before or after this?
0: Oh, I can't recall. Maybe it was 2014, I think, it's a year before perhaps?
1: Yeah, right. And you know how I love my little bee pictures. Uh, The Last Days of Mars also came out like two years before these. So there's a whole suite in the sort of 2014 to 2016 era. It was just the, the Mars movie era. And you know what? We've
0: been doing this podcast series for over a year now, and I had completely forgotten, but of course we'd done a podcast series very early on, an episode for I think it was Mission to Mars versus Red Planet. So this will be our second twin movie about Mars. (laughs) Who would have thought?
1: Wow. We're practically astronauts.
0: (laughs) Somehow we've discovered this ultra, ultra niche, niche (laughs) subgenre. Mars movie. I like it. (laughs) Um, Let's jump across to Approaching the Unknown because later on the 3rd of June, 2016, Approaching the Unknown was released. Now, brace yourself with the synopsis from IMDb and – be aware, this was actually drafted only four years ago from the recording of this podcast. And therefore, the filmmakers or producers or marketers had a good opportunity to try and craft a particular, particularly, uh, you know, enthralling, captivating synopsis that might actually really invoke your curiosity to see this movie, given that there have been so many movies set in space around this time um, and at Mars as well. Here's the synopsis from IMDb A US astronaut prepares for a mission to Mars.
1: I like it. It's it's stripped down. It's to the point. It's almost Hemingway-like.
0: <laughs> well, it's actually that, but also, too, it's actually also not that similar to the film because he spends most of the film in the spaceship on the mission to Mars. I mean, it kind of reads to me like it's about someone actually, you know, packing his undies and socks in a bag and, you know, doing the flight simulator and stuff before actually hopping on the rocket. So I suppose it's <laughs> wait, kind of wait, correct.
1: Hold on. A movie about a guy packing his underpants. That's, I'd, sure. But you're right, you're right, because uh, it's the word prepares, isn't it? He's, he's, he's already on the mission, isn't he?
0: Exactly, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's not saying he's preparing to land on Mars, which you argue that could be the case. He prepares for a mission to Mars. The film's about the mission. The film was about the journey. So, yeah, odd. Anyway, um, I assume you didn't see this one at the cinema. Did you catch this on Video On Demand?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yes, I did. In fact, Ben, I will say I finished watching this movie about 25 minutes ago. Well,
0: I I finished watching it about 35 minutes ago, so it is fresh in my mind. Wow. Um, I actually had no idea this film even existed until we discovered this uh, twin movies combination when one of our listeners pointed it out to us and we thought we'd have to try and give it a bash, but I was totally unaware of its existence, but when I saw the big shiny chrome dome of Mark Strong in that poster
1: <laughs> I was already in. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And look, uh, Mark Strong's uh, appearance in this movie, no, his uh, him, him being in this movie is definitely one of the reasons why I think we felt, oh, yeah, we could do this, that it's you know not going to be some total throwaway. It's not like a Cinetel film or something. Maybe it'd have an element of classiness to it. Or a mockbuster. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But also, Ben, I think it was one of the, uh, last couple of episodes, you 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 vocalised that perhaps you were really looking forward to maybe moving away from those um, Sherwood Forest set or or Tombstone set, those old timey movies, and into the into the 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 vastness of space for another episode. So I hope this has filled your heart with joy.
0: It has. This totally recharged me. This combination. Um, I was really I was fading. You're right. I expressed that on the podcast. Um, I'd been too back in the past. The, the the old timiness was wearing me down. I needed some uh, some glass, some metal, some uh, lack of gravity, you know, some rockets firing. I needed to jump forward into the future, or at least into some alternative universe. And these two films tick that box. So I'm back, baby. I'm back.
1: Wow, that's good. That's good.
0: All right, let's uh, perhaps jump to a bit of a uh, quick history lesson, a uh, comparison as to how he got here with these two movies being released within the same year of each other. So let's start with the one that was released first, The Martian. It was based uh, on a screenplay by Drew Goddard, and that was adapted from a novel of the same name. Uh, It's quite interesting, actually. The guy who wrote this book, I'm going kind of half from memory, half my research, but as I recall, uh, Andy Weir actually released this in installments as a blog uh, originally. I recall it being circulated as a bit of a behind-the-scenes inspiring story because he released – Chapter by chapter on his website, this book, writing it as he went. So perhaps having a very basic outline to work with, but pretty much exploring the story um, sequentially. And just basically also researching the science in this film as he went. So trying to educate himself as an astronaut to both learn the foundation knowledge and then actually apply that to solving problems he threw at his character, his protagonist – as a screenwriter or as a writer. So, a pretty unique background. And I can see that people were very inspired to, to sort of do something similar where it's like, right, you can actually go ahead and, you know, make your own book and publish it on Kindle. Um, that was something that wasn't around before. The gatekeepers of um, the publishing industry, a bit like the film industry, just made it really impractical to try and, you know, break out without their support. And so this film was both a breakout in that way in terms of being a self-marketed work, but then to actually get, you know, the attention of Hollywood and be made into a $200 million movie directed by one of the kings of sci-fi, Ridley Scott, is just inspiring, I think.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, I mean, what what do you think it was about the do you think it was that it took a sort of different approach to the sort of stock fare that you might otherwise get? do you think it was that sort of what is the term I don't know you want hard science? is this hard science i'm I'm doing air quotes as I say hard science because for the hard scientists out there maybe it's not, but I'm not sure I'm not a hard scientist. I'm a soft scientist
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I mean if you think about it, in many years beforehand we've actually had a lot of films which people, Call cool sci-fi, and this is a bit of a debate between the Star Trekkies and the Star Warsians. What do we call those fans? <laughs> the, the Warsies. <laughs> <laughs> and the Trekkies and the Warsies, you know, argue about this because the Trekkies will argue that their action, their film or their TV series is star, is science fiction because it's actually science is grounded in the fiction. It's possible. It's There's potential in it. And Star Wars is more space
1: opera. So it's basically. Uh, Stupid. Space fantasy. Uh, yes. <laughs> Look, I like Star Wars a lot, okay? Don't send any more letters.
0: <laughs> um, I'll give you a bit more background actually as to how this came about um, because this probably explains Andy Weir's background. He was actually the son of a particle physicist and an electrical engineer and he himself has a background in computer science. So he came to the table with that solid foundation behind him and I think that's what he's done is he's found that sweet spot to answer your question as to an entertaining story that has science in it and has enough there to you hear this terminology and you go, okay, I don't understand that myself. I'm no chemist, but they use simple enough vernacular. Like, what's it? What's the famous expression, Gabe?
1: Like blowing air into a balloon. Or
0: what's the? What's the? That's the. What's the thing oh. he says in the
1: trailer? The trailer moment. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, God, man, Sciencing the shit out of this.
0: Yeah, like. That pretty much, to me, captures the movie, right? It's like it's both saying there's going to be science to solve this problem, but we're going to put it in a vernacular and with action and depictions on screen that make it really accessible to the non-scientist audience. So, uh, I mentioned before how he made it available as a Kindle for 99 cents. Um, just then that alone, it rose to the top of the Amazon best-selling science fiction title, and it actually sold 35,000 copies in three months, which is insane. Uh, and then it went on to uh, sell to Podium Publishing, an audiobook publisher, and then uh, it sold rights for $100,000. Uh-huh. And then eventually, it gets about we're in 2014, it debuts on the New York Times bestseller list as a hardcover fiction, remained there for four weeks, uh, which is pretty impressive, got to about the 11th position, and then it was released eventually after that as a paperback, stuck around on the bestseller list, et cetera, et cetera. So- a pretty inspiring story all round. And I think what's most amazing about the behind the scenes of this film coming together is that it happened so quickly. He began writing this book in 2009. He has it on, on uh, Kindle, on Amazon, by 2012, in three years. And then it debuts on the New York Best Times uh, bestseller list 2014 it's optioned around 2014 as well, and it was released in 2016. Like, you'd have to agree from our experience going behind the scenes with many of these films, that is an incredible turnaround.
1: Yeah, totally. Andy Weir shouldn't get too used to that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's been spoiled now, hasn't he?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even just reading up on him, it's like he, had a, he has all of these other little bits and pieces in development or things that got, you know, uh, uh, adapted or, or or pilots and stuff. And, yeah, none of them have, have rocketed, as it were, with the sort of speed from conception to the screens as this. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane.
0: Uh, jumping across to Approaching the Unknown, look, this film is a tiny film and basically any information about it reflects that. Um, directed by Mark Elijah Rosenberg and also written by him as well, it was in Sundance and um, made for only 1.3 million dollars which is remarkable like i was watching this film with that budget in mind from the start trying to see how they craft a story to basically cheat that budget and of course they set it in one location we'll get this in, in our review but even then this film looks great for 1.3 million dollars but i couldn't find anything about this film or about this director like it's really interesting. He has no other credits on IMDb but this film and having done a couple of TV episodes since then. Otherwise, zip, zero, zilch. Um, It's really interesting. There's no Wikipedia page on him at all. There's actually just not much information about how he came up with this idea around the same time as The Martian. And I'm assuming just because it takes so long to make an indie film, it would have probably been several, several years before so it looks like, once again, it's just a case of serendipity. These both films just came out at the same time, both hitting the same zeitgeist but with no apparent connection to the other.
1: Yeah, I think I read maybe in some passing reference in a review that this had been written before, potentially even before, um, Andy Weir's book had been published Um but, yeah, I agree. It's weird. I guess in the age of VOD, if we would watched this on DVD, we might have got like a special features, you know, like a, uh, there might have been a behind-the-scenes video. But I suppose because we watched on VOD, there is not any of that. So there's not really any chance to watch a fun and insightful uh, uh, making of about this movie where perhaps some of these questions could be answered. So fuck you, VOD. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, The only thing of interest, I suppose, as to why did this particular director debut with this particular film is he had actually done a couple of um, science fiction films. One was Orbit, an omnibus movie about our solar system, and then uh, another Mars film called No Message Received. Um, So... He does have a deep interest in this. Um, If you actually do a Google search, you'll actually see he is a dead ringer for Mark Strong 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. It would appear that he's actually cast an actor who resembles him in some ways. Wow. So very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Okey-doke. Let's get to our review. Now, let's start with The Martian, Gabe. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was this a good execution of the common premise it shares with
1: approaching the unknown? I think basically everyone liked The Martian, didn't they? It's a pretty hard movie to dislike, isn't it? And I know you loved it, right? (laughs) Short review, yes, yes. Uh, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's it's a real crowd pleaser, I suppose. Yeah, this
0: film actually feels like a film that was crafted to entertain all four quarters of the audience and In some ways, I thought, am I being manipulated? Am I being manipulated to like this movie because it ticks every box? And then I thought, you know what? It's just a cracking good time at the pictures, as you'd
1: say. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What do you mean manipulate? All movies are manipulating you to like them. Some are just better at it than others. 100%. And what I meant by that was I felt like the beats were
0: so perfectly placed throughout Um. the movie. And then I realised, you know what? It's just a well-made movie. Like, don't get suspicious about the timing of these story beats or – the way it's twisting and turning um, and playing both two convention on some occasions and playing against it and surprising other occasions, that's just a good movie. But I guess because I've been so scarred by seeing a movie and feeling I'm being manipulated emotionally to feel for the character without that being earned, that's what I mean by, I guess, being tricked um, or opposed to just good, solid character work making me appreciate the story so when something does go wrong... I don't feel, I feel it's earned. I feel like I sincerely am rooting for that character or feel his pain.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think it feels, you know, it It feels just a little bit fresher, as we sort of said before, because it takes that sort of scientific approach to his his problems. You know, we talked before about uh, watching, like, you know, Mission to Mars, which sort of does a little bit of this, but then obviously it has, like, intergalactic, weird-looking pinhead aliens and stuff, or Red Planet that doesn't do much of this but then ends up with weird beetle aliens. This has none of that, right? It, like, it plays it very straight. There's no stupid-ass aliens or faces on Mars. It's just a guy with a problem and how is he going to use the limited resources that he has there to fix it? And that's pretty compelling.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's basically Robinson Crusoe on Mars, isn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't really remember Robinson Crusoe all that much. But he was stranded on stranded on a desert island, had a monkey butler, didn't he? I can't recall the butler. Uh, Uh, Let's
0: think think Castaway. It's very much Castaway. uh, Like Castaway with Tom Hanks by Robert Zemeckis, you know, a very serious movie, contemplative, uh, lots of problem solving happening on screen in real time where you're kind of like following the character's discovery of a problem and then you're either just behind him as he tries to solve it or working at the same time as him as he tries to find a solution with whatever's around him.
1: Mm, and I guess The Martian has the sort of dual problem narratives, which is um, Mr. Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon on Mars, just trying to, like, survive, make water and food and stitch himself up. And then the sort of um, the NASA gang sort of led up by Jeff Daniels and Scene Bean, um, who are trying to figure out a way to turn around Jessica Chastain's ship to save him or not turn around that ship, you know, just figure out a way to get him back off Mars. Um, So it's kind of interesting to see those sort of dual narratives and what, you know, the the science behind each of them, you know, it's like, you know, there's that great scene where Donald Glover's character comes up with some stuff that I can't really remember, but it sounded cool. It was
0: the same science we had in Armageddon, which is like let's throw a spaceship
1: around a planet and slingshot it. Oh, they love slingshotting spaceships. They love slingshotting. That must be legit, right? Like you can't have it in so many movies and you can't actually slingshot a spaceship. I'm going to be so disappointed if I'm on a spaceship one day and I pipe up when there's a problem. I'm like, we should slingshot it. And they're like, that's not real. Well, the funny thing was, I mean, you see it get it, and you think, yeah,
0: right, really? And they use that term slingshot. So everyone in the audience goes, oh, yeah, I get it now. Like, yeah, it goes round and goes faster. But at the time I thought, well, that can't be true or... They're really stretching science in that case. But because this film's written by Andy Weir, the scientist guy, and because everything else is so infused with science, then I guess it, I, I assume it is true. Like, I don't think they're taking liberties. I think the film took pride in not taking liberties, and everything that actually happens on screen could happen. Forget Armageddon. Ed Harris explains the slingshot theory in Apollo 13.
1: How do we get our people home? They are here. We turn them around, straight back, yes. direct abort. No, oh, you the No, sir, no, sir. We get them on a free return trajectory. It's the option with the fewest question marks for safety.
0: I agree with Jerry. Use the moon's gravity, slingshot them around.
1: So it's interesting when you see these sorts of... A movie like this that does really try hard with, you know with the science that makes you believe all of it, I suppose. Um, it's like watching a movie where they um, try really hard to to present, I don't know, like say a, 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 a good example would be like, this is a weird example, Apocalypto. Remember that movie with Mel Gibson? Yep. They made a big deal about, oh, it's spoken in, in, in the ancient Mayan language. So you, you hear that and you go, wow, it must all be true. Apparently it's all bullshit. This is kind of like that. You can dress it up with the, la- the language of science and an idiot like me will believe absolutely everything because I'm an idiot like me.
0: Yeah. But it's funny, isn't it, because I just saw uh, Greyhound recently, the Tom Hanks movie set during, I think it's World War Two. Ah, the Second World War, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that film is basically 95% military speak, like, it's just lots of vernacular and you don't actually know what they're talking about, but you just go with it. Like you almost could treat it like a silent movie. You know that from the change in pitch of their voices and them running around doing stuff that whatever thing has happened is bad and then they now must react to it. And then by using just sort of like the visuals of, say, uh, little dots on a screen as to where various ships are and so on, you go, okay, they're close to the baddies. They need to try and kill the baddies or escape the baddies. But that film is really heavy in jargon. But you go with it. You just go with it.
1: Ah, God, I thought Greyhound was so tedious. I couldn't even tell who was who beyond Tom Hanks. All the guys in their stupid-ass helmets all looked exactly the same. And I think, you know, what's interesting about The Martian is this has a huge cast, you know. With Greyhound, I didn't know who was who as Tom Hanks tried to solve his bloody, you know, soggy, soggy water battles. But here... You know, even people who just get like a scene or two, they're actually all quite well-defined. well, well, well defined. Um, you, you get them. Uh, I, I can tell who they are. I like that. Yeah,
0: I agree. All the characters here in this film seem quite distinct, have their own little stories, and that's really hard to do, particularly with the space characters where you can't have them refer to their own backgrounds on Earth too much without feeling like an exposition dump. Um, and also, when you've got films that have characters in spacesuits, it's always hard to try and decipher one from the other. And they try and often have, say, a name tag or something on the side of their shoulder piece or something like that. But that's not something you can easily see. I think the best example I've ever seen for how you try and decipher characters that are dressed in a very similar outfit. You mentioned Greyhound, where everyone's wearing the same military outfit, the same little tin hats or any spaceship movie, is actually, believe it or not, J.J. Abrams' first Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. And there's a scene at the very start, the opening scene when all the stormtroopers race out, and Finn, uh, he is fighting next to a friend or another stormtrooper who gets shot, and the stormtrooper basically puts his bloody hand on Finn's stormtrooper mask and runs it down the side. And that just basically marks him as the obvious character decipher from the other stormtroopers around him. It's a really simple gesture, but it means wherever that character goes with that mask on for the next 20 minutes or so, you know, that's Finn. And they try other Star Wars movies to try and give them uh, different details, like a general or someone who's put out the pecking order might have a different kind of color or shoulder pad to indicate uh, seniority, much like you'd have say badges or patches on a World War II outfit, but it's really hard to do. And this film here. I don't. I can't quite pick the trick they used. Obviously, you can see their faces through the glass astronaut helmet. But when you just meet these characters the very first time and they're walking outside, you still seem to know basically who's who.
1: Mm, mm. Yeah, it's a pretty good film, isn't it? Like, ah, I mean, I guess if I was only ever going to ding this for one little thing is it feels a little bit like it starts running out of steam towards the... The end, just a, just a touch.
0: Where, where, at, which, at which point, when he gets to the spaceship, he's going to basically, you know, strip down and go into space.
1: Yeah, yeah. But he's got to drive across Mars, listening to ABBA or something, and then strip down the spaceship. And you know, I don't know. It just, I maybe maybe I was just a little scienced out by then. But 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 I love all of that. And it's interesting actually. When we get to the approaching the unknown, I actually love all of the more low-key stuff where he's problem-solving at the beginning of his journey. And in a weird way, it's like, you know, I'd watch a, I don't know, six-hour Bellatar version of The Martian, which is just like the slow, slow movie version, which is just him just doing his day-to-day, living on Mars, making his potatoes.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. It's quite meditative, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. It's almost like that horror movie thing where the first half of horror movies are often more interesting than the second half where it's atmosphere and by the end they have to escalate. You know, so you, you start with just creepy birds hitting windows or, you know, dogs dying or kids hearing claps or voices and by the end you have like a floating nun demon and you're like, yeah, that's kind of shit. Uh, it was better when it was just the sort of, the atmosphere, and that's what I really like about The the Martian, probably like the first half where in a way just watching him try and figure out how to, you know, uh, get water is, is, is for me the juice, as it were.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think like Castaway, um, and this happens as well in approaching the unknown, there's something that when you've got a character by themselves and they – may talk to themselves because they're they're either lonely or they're just thinking out loud. And they're trying to do something just so uh, perfunctory as find water that we in developed countries take for granted. And they're just looking at what they've got around them and going, how can I extract juice from a rock, you know, water from a rock here? Like it it is, I guess, one of the most primal basic challenges. It kind of puts into perspective something like a Transformers movie where – the stakes just become ludicrous and crazy. And this goes right back to that really stripped basic value of we eat, we drink, we live. And how does he do that when he doesn't have all the usual tools at hand? Um, and I agree. There's something kind of um, – I said meditative before. There's something uh, serene watching him sort of plant those potatoes. Um, it's like the visual version of – I think you mentioned it before in this podcast – Is it ASMR?
1: Yes, exactly. Um,
0: Just update our listeners who aren't familiar with what that acronym is and that particular
1: interest slash fetish slash hobby. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a fetish. Maybe some people fetishize it. Yeah, I mean, there's probably sexy ASMR. Anyway, it is uh, the autonomous sensory meridian response, uh, a sort of sensation that, you know, is... Happens in the scalp, but it's often triggered. People like uh, videos where people talk very softly and make noises. Maybe not that noise. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a, there's a whole subculture of YouTube videos around ASMR. But, yeah, it's kinda, it is kind of it is kind of like that, and that's why we've had that uh, spaceship uh, sound effect playing throughout this whole review, or have we? I don't know. Maybe we killed that. Maybe it's still going. <laughs> bleep, 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 bleep. But, yeah, it is. Th- look, you can get, like, the 10 hours of spaceship sounds on YouTube and just listen to that, you know. So in the same way that people like to keep the Truman Show on all night just to watch him sleep, I'm saying maybe, you know, if they wanted to do the the 10-hour The Martian movie and it's just, you know, uh, Matt Damon fossicking through Kate Mara's poop to uh, plant potatoes, maybe I'm there for that.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I was saying, though, about being a visual version of ASMR and that yeah. you're watching him just sort of like, you know, plant the potatoes and you think to yourself on the page that's going to be really boring. But you just you give yourself over to the story, I think because you know the stakes are so high you don't mind watching this really perfunctory process of like planting potatoes because you know if it doesn't work, he dies. You set that same scene just in, say, any other film like, let's say Heat, for example. If we had say Robert De Niro <laughs> planting potatoes, right? Um, in a film where the bank robbery is the juice, is the action, that has no value. And that's, the, that's why I think it's interesting, this film, because you – Engaged in the sorts of things that on Earth you would find boring, but here it just has this really heavy stakes, and so you're really <laughs> invested in it.
1: Although maybe Natalie Portman looking for her barrettes is the potatoes. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Hey, lady, why are you so interested in me planting potatoes? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, what else? What, what a great cast! Have we talked about that? No. Damon, it- Chastain, Wig, Daniel, Pena, Bean.
0: It is a, a great cast and I say it every time we talk about quality US movies but what the Americans get so well is they cast brilliantly and it's a great cast. Everyone's at their A-game and they're just so interesting. Like they bring, I think, more uh, – they infuse their characters with more personality than perhaps is on the page but they the characters are also created very well by the writer as well. Like – I love, for example, who's that particular character who is the blonde woman from the Black Mirror TV series who is in Mission Control? I think it's Mackenzie Davis.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Like,
0: small role, but she's really good, you know. Um, they're all great. Um, Jeff Daniels, like, walking that line between being, like, the leader who has to be – he does have EQ, he can empathise, but he has to be the person to be devil's advocate to say, you know what – And it's that classic conundrum, isn't it? Like Sophie's Choice. Like do we risk five lives to to save one? Like are we going to spend millions of dollars to save one single person when they lose pilots, astronauts, people across the planet all the time? Um, And what I think this film gets so right is that the spirit of NASA is totally infused in the rescue mission, which is this is beyond money. This is beyond um, one person's life. If we can save this one guy – then that's as important as inhabiting Mars. It says that it's our humanity that will make it possible for us to colonise Mars. And I think Jeff Daniels did a really great job of being really tough in that regard in terms of challenging everyone's, you know, heartstrings to try and save Watney, uh, but at the same time just sort of relenting enough um, and supporting them when the opportunity arises.
1: Yeah, True. What a stupid thing, though, to go and try and colonize Mars. What a bunch of idiots. <laughs> I mean-
0: Don't mention that to Elon Musk.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, Philosophically, I think it's just a stupid idea, but go just live in a desert. Or like, or just try and save this
0: planet. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean- What's easier? To save this planet- Totally. Or move to an entirely new planet that is hostile and try and make- First of all, make oxygen available on that planet, which is like a big challenge- and start a fresh third. Mm. It seems like maybe just if we stop shitting in our own backyard on earth here, that'd be a lot easier.
1: Yeah, totally. So stupid. Anyway. Can I
0: criticize one casting choice?
1: Oh, I bet I know. Is it is it the wee oh the count of three? Yeah, yeah.
0: Kristen we. <laughs> Sorry. On three, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um I don't know why she's in this film. I tried on the third viewing to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't think she works and I don't know why someone like Ridley Scott would cast her in this role. And even if he does, I don't think she has the capacity, much like who's the other actor that we've had issues with um, from Saturday Night Live? Kate McKinnon, I think it was. McKinnon. McKinnon. They're kind of the same in a way. Uh, I think Kristen Wiig's better and be naturalistic, but I just don't think that I don't buy her as the global head of PR and marketing for NASA. Like one of the most stressful, important roles for this particular mission in the world. Um, and she has seems to have no poise at all. Um, seemed to be just kind of quite uh, scatty and um, not even strategic. Like I just, don't buy the character and don't buy the actor cast as the character. Yeah. Any montrose.
1: It'd be sort of like if you cast Will Ferrell in Jeff Daniels' role. Now, I'm not saying Will Ferrell can't do drama. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Like, Will Ferrell can do drama. You know, that Mark Forster movie where he gets his life narrated or whatever it was called. You know, I can't remember what that one was called. But he can play dramatic beats, but there's just something about his on screen. Personality or the vibe, his vibe that he exudes, just makes it hard to be believable in certain roles. And well, you think you have stranger than fiction. Yeah, before? that one, that one. You know, yeah. so like, like it's not a knock on you know our theoretical Will Ferrell casting here or Christian Wigg as a an actress. She's fat, like bridesmaid. Is a fucking all timer, but she's incredible on that. I agree. But but you know, it's just sometimes the Actors carry with them, I guess, uh, you know, baggage or or something that when when you just see them, you go, oh, no, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit for some reason. It's, you know, it's like actors playing high status or low status. Some of them just fundamentally kind of can't do it. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're just not suited for some roles like you say, you know. Um, and weirdly, weirdly, and maybe this is a way to seg to it, Luke Wilson in Approaching the Unknown has a little bit of that vibe for me.
0: Okay, let's uh, move to that. Like, So that's a great little segue because that is a bizarre casting choice. So Approaching the Unknown, um, what grinded your years? What did you like about it? And was it a better version of the same concept than The Martian? And maybe you could kick it off with that casting choice of Luke Wilson, who is the secondary character behind Mark Strong.
1: Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just a weird choice i guess i don't it's he again he's just one of those actors who i'm sure they were looking for someone who you've heard of or whose voice is recognizable for this for this for this role who really only appears in like seven shots on a computer screen but is otherwise just heard um and i don't know it's just sort of a little bit like oil and Water or something like that. But
0: like his first line, for example, uh, the very first line he utters in the film where he's actually on earth before the mission with Mark Strong's character. And I think he's just, the first thing he says is, because um, he has that Owen Wilson style uh, high pitched voice, doesn't he? <laughs> and he goes, oh, stand a forth. And it sounds like he's coming straight out of Bottle Rocket or another movie or Idiocracy.
1: Yeah. This is something that there's one shot, like, you know, like you said earlier, the entire thing is basically set in Mark Strong's little capsule except for a sequence set in the desert and one shot at the beginning where he's sort of walking through, you know, flight command and and Luke Wilson's in that scene. But I wondered, it's such a wide shot and Luke Wilson's so in shadow that I wondered if it was a double, like if they just couldn't afford to actually have Luke Wilson on that set and they just doubled him and and dubbed him.
0: No, there is actually a shot of him leaning forward into the foreground and he's clearly...
1: Oh, is there?
0: Yeah, and that's when he says that
1: line, stand it forth. But that's not when he's on screen, is it?
0: Yeah, not on screen. It's when he's like on the uh, camp on Earth. You know when you first meet Mark Strong when he sort of has made water... In the desert and comes out of the desert.
1: Oh yeah, 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 totally. When Mark Strong comes out of the desert, but I'm talking about the the space the, the HQ, the space HQ scene. Anyway, Oh, yes, look, yeah,
0: yeah. Look, think, look, you could be right. There's a real, yeah.
1: there's there's a funny and fun tendency these days to play like spot the were these actors ever actually in a scene together, which you get kind of with lower budget movies or DTV movies or or just movies that have to deal with, uh, you know, sometimes tough schedules. And if you've got actors who just Roll in for you know their million bucks a day or whatever it is um, that in that movie with you know perhaps Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Oldman weren't actually ever physically in the room together for their scene. Anyway, look, neither of those guys are in this movie. It was just a little rumination here. Um, look broadly, I I quite enjoyed this film. I'm I was looking up online and you know without biting out biting off too much of the reviews later. I'm surprised people didn't like it that much. I particularly like the first 45 minutes again, but I didn't think it was. I thought it was all right. Like, you know, it's just, you know, just chilling. Yeah.
0: (laughs) This to me, I think, falls in that subgenre of the low budget indie sci fi movie where you're kind of fighting against gravity. Excuse the pun Uh, from the start. (laughs) In that. This film is a great example. You can't compete with the budget of The Martian. So you've got to basically be creative. And I've always liked science fiction films that take that whole set-in-one-location concept, which you often do like films like Assault and Precinct 13 or the shark movie The Shallows or something like that where you try and have all the stakes in one location and ideally if the location is affordable enough, uh, like a hostage movie or something like that, then you can basically craft a really exciting movie on a reasonably affordable budget. Now, doing so five movies like that are much harder and films like Gravity cost 100 million dollars for example and The Martian cost a fortune as well about 200 million dollars or something like that. But, you know, conceivably the idea can work. I think there was a similar film called Love that came out years ago. There's that one you mentioned before which I think is called What's the one you mentioned before with Liv Schreiber? I think that's set on Mars. I-
1: uh, yes, Surviving Mars or something. I yeah,
0: think. that's right. And so there is this sort of subgenre where you try and get lots of bang for your buck by shooting outside in a desert or that resembles Mars and you're doing a heavy kind of red colour correction on it to make it look more Marsy. Or you set it inside a spaceship in a contained space, which is for all intents and purposes, once you've paid off the cost of a few computers and you know the odd uh, helmet and stuff like that, it could be an affordable movie. Uh, This does really well in that regard, I think. Like, I feel like there's a lot of bang for your buck on screen and it looks like a lot more than $1.3 million, which is a credit also to how you can have those external visual effects of rockets taking off and use stock footage and with very clever camera angles and so on, it makes it feel much more expensive and expansive than what it actually is. Um, I think this film... Works if you if you accept from the start it's an indie sci-fi so mm. it feels like the sort of film that we've talked about you know we have you know written together or we've talked about indie movies and some people in the indie film world all around the world um, might see a film and think it's a genius idea because they actually don't know that genre very well so they'll see a drama slash insert genre ah uh, yes and they'll think oh wow this is like a really amazing thriller or whatever. But if you come from, say, watching horror movies, you're like, no, actually, it's a really lame imitation of insert these top five amazing horror movies. Yeah, totally. And I sort of feel this film falls in that category. If you're watching this at Sundance where it premiered and you're sort of skewed to more indie movies and The Martian isn't your cup of tea ordinarily as a big sort of multiplex blockbuster, you'd see this and go, oh, yeah, like it's like the drama that I like, but in space. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> you know, uh, yes. it's If you like that kind of those meditative shots you might have seen in films like um, Tree of Life or Days of Heaven where, you know, hands drift across wheat, then you'll enjoy, you know, his hands playing with the leaves the plant he's growing. So I sort of feel you'd actually approach from that perspective and really find it kind of pretty exciting because it's got the meditative, quiet elements. It's very reflective and then it has like, the high stakes of he could die.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But if you apply it to the Martian, there the films are very different in that regard. Like this film is about him just trying to make water to live and feed a plant, and that's and basically him reflecting on this journey with occasional flashbacks. Whereas the Martian is set pretty much all in present time, and he's just trying to like go from beat to beat to beat to stay alive.
1: Yeah, totally. And I guess you know I I agree. I I, I really. I did enjoy this movie. I think for its, you know, one point, so 1.3 million three million dollar budget, it's pretty pretty well made. I guess that's a little bit of the issue, like you've said. Maybe it's not quite sure what it wants to be. Like the first half an hour or something seems like it's really going to be about this guy trying to, you know, uh, again, what's that shitty term? Hard science fiction. Like it's just going to be a, a bit more about him trying to figure out how he can make his – little device work which will provide him with the water that he needs to, to survive on Mars. Quite why he didn't really nail down his machine before he took off is a whole other question. That seems very bizarre that he's basically blasted off into space with a semi-working machine. You think he'd spend... Th-
0: yeah. What's that story beat? as your interpretation? Is that he lied to Luke Wilson's character Skinny and said it worked when it didn't and no one actually tested him on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess possibly. And, look, that's kind of interesting if that they've kept that purposefully vague, um, but it's sort of like that Ad Astra movie. I don't know if you saw that one with Brad Pitt. Yeah, I did. Where it's just like, what is this? Like, what do you want this movie to be? Like, are you like a, you know, weird rumination on the vastness and emptiness of space? Or are you a movie about killing space baboons? Like, it just... It's just a little bit unsure. Like you know, The Martian seems very confident in knowing what it is, whereas approaching the unknown sort of feels like it wants to have its cake and eat it too. As being a you know, it's just it's a little bit it's a little bit hard sci-fi, but it's also a little bit like Solaris, but it's also a little bit two thousand and one, and I don't know. Maybe those elements never really quite. Click together.
0: I think that's a really good uh, reference to Ad Astra, because you're right. Ad Astra is probably, I would say, the Frankenstein love child of the Martian meets interstellar meets approaching the unknown, in that it has like bits of action, it has scope and scale of interstellar, and then it has this reflective relationship aspect to it where he's sort of like searching for his dad. Um, and what does all this mean? Like, is it about the journey or is it just about um, your place in the world?
1: Yeah, yeah. And you can see why with Ad Astra, you know, apparently there's all these behind the scenes issues and, you know, the, all the extra pirate shit was added later and stuff. And maybe there was an original cut of Ad Astra that was much more confident in what it was, but my guess would be what it was then was more of like the Terrence Malick of space movies and execs got a little bit nervous and made them put in a whole bunch of other dumb shit and maybe Brad Pitt crying in space just wasn't enough. And, you know, this has a little bit of that. It's only a short movie, but 50 minutes in, 60 minutes in, you know, you're sort of like, well, what are you trying to do here? Guys, like, am I supposed to be really invested in will he be able to fix the the ship? Because that doesn't really pay off. He sort of does. He sort of doesn't. Like, or, or am I supposed to be just going along for the vibe, you know? And I love a vibe movie, but this it sort of isn't quite that either. Um,
0: uh, and it feels like at the end of Approaching the Unknown too that, When he lands on Mars and he gets out and you spend probably five minutes, he sort of walks along to a vista that the film then cuts to black and the point's meant to be it's about the journey, not the destination. It's about you discover who you are and what's important on the way um, and perhaps getting there, he's not going to get the answers he wants.
1: Yeah, although halfway through I was like, I'm pretty confident this whole uh, space uh, trip is just a metaphor for him being dead. And he died in the desert and, you know, uh, the people that he's hearing, uh, Luke Wilson's character are like like Danny Aiello in Jacob's Ladder. Basically all movies lead back to Jacob's Ladder. Is he dead along the way? And, you know, what do you think of that theory?
0: That's interesting. Um, do you think that's still having seen the film now?
1: No. <laughs> no, I don't really <laughs> think so. I think <laughs> that sort of runs out of steam. Although, you know, any movie that has flashbacks to a guy lying on his back in the desert uh, you know, I guess it's... Dying, dying of thirst. Yeah, it's hard not to be just like, duh, maybe it's all a dream. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Look... I, 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 yeah, and also because they throw away a lot of the, the space and science stuff and there's these big unanswered questions. Like we said, like, why is he blasting off by himself with a machine that doesn't seem to fully work? You know, like...
0: Yeah, it feels like there should be a reveal in the movie that gives a greater sense of what his motivation is. Like, is his motivation to be the first to land on Mars come hell or high water because it's about ego, Um, is it about that he um, wants to escape Earth? You know, that's an interesting idea, isn't it, that it's not about where you're going to, it's about where you're escaping from. Mm. And the Martian's very clear. He wants to escape Mars to live Uh, and he's only trying to live in the meantime until he can be rescued. Whereas in this film here, it's the reverse. He's on the way to Mars. He's experiencing the crisis on the way. And you get a sense at the start of the film that perhaps he's escaping something. To me, I thought, and maybe I missed this entirely, but I sh- I thought, you know, having a bit of a bet halfway through the movie or even a third in, that he'd lost his wife and daughter in a car crash to <laughs> something similar to either the story before Dead Calm, the film with Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman and Billy Zane, directed by Philip Noyce, where they've suffered a tragedy before and that then becomes sort of something that motivates him and drives him throughout the film like it does for Nicole Kidman and Dead Calm. Or uh, Three Colors Blue, uh, where uh, Juliette Binoche has lost her daughter in a car accident. Nice. And that there for colours and shapes.
1: What happens? Good references. I love your references, Ben. <laughs> Three Colors
0: Blue. And so- I thought that would actually be integral to this movie and thinking about it after watching it, it would have actually improved it because there's something interesting about that. Like if you lose someone, someone you love, um, a husband, wife, a son, child, a parent and what? how do you process that? Like do you process it and stay where you are or do you move cities, quit jobs, um, run away from the environment that is stained by that death or that sadness. And that would have been interesting, I think, that if he actually had got to Mars and then thought, you know what, I haven't escaped that. Like let's say there was something similar to Dead Calm or Three Colours Blue and he was trying to escape a world to find somewhere else and he gets there and basically looks out and looks at this empty, desolate expanse and he's is alone now as he was back on Earth after losing his daughter or wife. And then thinks, and then perhaps he cries and realizes, actually, you know what? I can't escape it. My sadness is still with me, and being here doesn't change that. Mm. Or perhaps it does, and but we get some sort of clarity. But as it was, he sort of filmed walking off the left of screen. There's no kind of close-up on his face. There's a sort of view shown in the distance, but it's not that spectacular. It's not not an amazing gully or the Grand Canyon of Mars. And so I sort of feel there's a missed opportunity there.
1: Yeah, I think you're right because Mark Strong is a fantastic actor and, God damn, whenever he turns up in movies, uh, i got to point at the screen and say to anyone, oh, that's Mark Strong and, look, he maybe he's wearing a wig, maybe he's making a big accent choice. Who knows? But it's always great to see him in movies and he's good in this. But you're right, the character is something of a, I don't know, an empty vessel, as it were. Like there's just... There's just not a huge amount there, is there? I think
0: basically Mark Strong um, imbues his character with a lot more authority and empathy from the audience than almost 90% of other actors could. Um, Like he's doing a lot of heavy lifting with not many lines of dialogue and not much to react to. And this film with a different actor I think would be just boring and uninteresting. So massive kudos to Mark Strong. Like I love him and- if you cast an actor like him and makes your film stronger, well done. But if you could actually had a slightly stronger motivation behind the character and Mark Strong, even
1: better. Yeah. So what do they give him? They just give him that sort of slightly ephemeral um, jerk-off motion dialogue, which I love in movies, you know, where he wants to give everything up for a moment of pure wonder and, um, but I mean, what is that? That's not that's not much. And you're right. At the end, we never even see his reaction to a single moment of pure wonder. Or maybe that's the point. Maybe Mars does not even provide that for him. I'm not. I'm not sure. It is. I guess it's. I don't want my hand held. I'm not. I'm not a complete dummy. But it is quite opaque, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I think the film could have done one or two things. Either lent in harder to the ending, and perhaps shown apparently there is actually something like ten times the size of the Grand Canyon on Mars and shown that and then either and then shown his reaction or no non-reaction or just imagine for example him stepping towards the camera out of the spaceship instead of what you see which is the camera trailing following him out of the spaceship. Imagine him walking into frame, almost resembling the poster of the Martian, and then a look on his face as to what he's seeing and then we don't see what he sees.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Like something where perhaps you don't focus on what he's seeing, you focus on his reaction, and that's the point of the movie. Or you show what he sees but don't show his reaction and because his reaction isn't as important as the the wonder that the audience sees. What we get is neither. It's kind of like a pretty bland image and no reaction, and you think, "Well, what's the point?"
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I or you or you cut to black as he like leaves the spaceship. Basically, just as the camera gets to the door and he steps onto Mars, you cut to black there because what's the point of going any further if you're not going to actually add something extra to that character's discovery?
1: And we've assumed that he's basically gone – he's lost his mind somewhat because at one point, you know, three-quarters of the way through, the, the, the mission is told to abort but he puts on his little beanie and grows out his beard like a crazy spaceman and continues on anyway. Um, with space dementia. Yeah. Isn't that what uh, Steve Bishimi gets in Armageddon? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess he does. Um, you lost your mind! <laughs> He's got space dementia. But but again, in a way, I don't know if you ever saw James Gray, I think James Gray um, made it, The Lost City of Z or Z.
0: No, but James Gray did Ad Astra before. No, but that's one with Charlie Hunnam, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Charlie Hunnam, Robert Patterson and Tom Holland. It's interesting because the – I found Ad Astra to be quite lacking but The Lost City of Zed is really great thematically about the sort of like pointlessness of these journeys into the unknown and the the way that people sort of just throwing their – I don't know, throwing their lives away, looking for glory or wonder – um, and I, I don't know, I guess I just wish this maybe hit that harder. I guess what it just comes back to and I guess what we're discussing is it's just very hard to know what you're supposed to feel at the end and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm not saying ambiguity is a problem but it's just never really clear about really what it's trying to say. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's, I think, a good
0: summary of what's lacking in that particular movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although, Although I think... Just want to be careful about being too hard on this movie because I really did. I really did like it, and I liked the the photography and the and, and most of the performances. And I thought it was well made, and it wasn't too long. Um, so 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 it's. I think it's interesting to 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 chat about, and I'm really glad I watched it. To be honest, because if not for this podcast, I probably would never have seen this movie. Despite being a you know a consumer of everything, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree, agree, agree. I would not have seen this but for the podcast recording and I'm so glad I did. I thought it was a really good film and my criticisms are basically just holding it to uh, comparison to The Martian for better or worse. They're very different movies, very similar concepts, but the executions are almost the opposite. Like one is close to being an action movie in many respects, despite it leading to hard science. And this one is much more meditative and is something closer to me to a Terrence Malick film, just with the use of a voiceover that is reflective, you know, that always feels like that's sort of his wheelhouse. I think this film is an amazing debut um, and an incredible achievement in relation to everything, from budget to being captivating and interesting. The fact they got into Sundance is an incredible achievement and also getting such strong cast. And even with the cast, we haven't really spoken about the other cast besides Luke Wilson and um, Mark Strong, but the other guys who aren't particularly recognisable names and are in small roles, they're fantastic. Like, they're really good. Like, they, they're they unsettling and they've both been in space, these two characters, for quite a long time. And uh, they feel a little bit um, – they're, they're distressed. One's called Worsley and the other one's called Green Street. And they – you feel like they could possibly kill him um, or sabotage his mission at the brief point when Mark Strong's character, Santa Forth, is sort of doing a bit of a stopover um, to drop off resources to them and, and take off. And it's really well done. And um, I, don't, I haven't seen those actors before, but to get famous actors like Mark Strong Luke Wilson, particularly Mark Strong doing great work, and then to cast in only those other three other roles uh, and cast so well, I think it's an incredible achievement. So, yeah, good movie. Okay, let's do our combined review uh, noted similarities, coincidence or rip-off? Well, you mentioned it earlier, beards. <laughs> it's a bit like that thing that Robin Williams used to always have a beard for a serious role and clean-shaven for a jokey movie. I love how in space movies, they always use the beard as a signal that someone's either gone a little bit crazy or they've given up.
1: That's true, isn't it? Yeah, it's always
0: the way. It's always the way. <laughs> um, which movies age better? I mean, these movies came out so recently, I think it's hard to criticise them, but... Does The Martian still stand
1: up for you? Yeah, yeah. I think I think The Martian is good, and and to its credit, it's very rewatchable. Like every time I just sort of chuck it on, um, it's always quite entertaining, isn't it? Like, like I love those rewatchable movies.
0: Yeah, this movie is one of those films I feel you could drop into at any point, and because he has a little challenge, he has to science the shit out of it every time. You just drop in for say two or three scenes, watch that, and then keep going or uh, turn it off, but the whole film is very rewatchable and you can actually just sort of like come back to little bits and pieces.
1: Yeah, although I still, in my head, it's very weird that Matt Damon and Jessica Chastain were both in Interstellar and I get weird bits sort of crisscrossed in my head just a touch when I have to think about these Spaceman movies.
0: Yeah, I agree. It is weird when certain actors make those choices, like Mark Strong was also in Sunshine. (laughs) You know, like- Oh, yeah, yeah. So similar situation, like they clearly are drawn back to either a genre that they really like themselves as an audience viewer, or there's just something particularly challenging about those particular characters in space. I guess it's stripping away a lot of the crutches and um, the stakes are just naturally high. So I guess as an actor, it's like, yeah, I can really kind of chew on something substantial here as an actor.
1: Yeah. It's probably fun just to play a spaceman.
0: Exactly. Simple as that. Something that goes back to being kids. Uh, Okey-doke. Trivia. Let's start with The Martian. Um, Look, there's a lot of surprise, surprise, science geeky stuff out there. Um, A lot of the stuff is actually is real. We've discussed that already. Um, Interestingly, Ridley Scott mentioned that Matt Damon's solar scenes were shot for five weeks straight, and after that, Damon was relieved, but he didn't actually meet his co-stars until he was reunited with them to promote the movie, which is pretty cool. So I guess in some respects it was basically he was experiencing the same loneliness and so on that the character does on screen.
1: Yeah, right, because of course of course, you're right, right? Like he'd just be reacting to like a bloody, you know, terminal with a green screen on it and an AD reading whoever's lines off screen.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, another little fact. A real potato farm was installed in the studio uh, to film more stages of growth so they could use it for filming. So they science the shit out of the, cut, the set as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't there some real famous bit of thing that they got wrong in this movie though where like the gravity's all mixed up?
0: No, I didn't know that, really.
1: Yeah, like I don't know. I read it somewhere or found it somewhere or Google this, dear listener, but apparently they should all be walking much more slowly or walking much with a much bigger gait or something like that. But for the purposes of the film, Ridley Scott just decided it would be better if they just, you know, wandered about
0: per normal. Ah, interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, Another little fact. um, Apparently much of the research and development on Prometheus, which came out in 2012, was actually used on this film, especially the spacesuits. And apparently the design of the spacesuit originally did something kind of quite bulbous that resembled Buzz Lightyear. And then apparently Ridley Scott saw it and then sort of stripped it down. And I thought that was interesting because when I first saw this movie, I was very conscious that it seemed the actors were wearing something closer to a snug-fitting wetsuit Mm. than what you traditionally see with these movies. And then you watch the other movie, *Approaching the Unknown, and it actually does resemble something closer to Buzz Lightyear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I I thought it was interesting that Andy Weir, the writer of a movie about space flight, is himself afraid of flying. There's a fun fact.
0: Really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's jump on to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So in The Martian, Drew Goddard, the writer was actually set to direct this originally. Um, You hear this a lot, don't you? Basically, there's someone set to direct and then Ridley Scott says, actually... That's mine. I want to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And hasn't this happened a few times to Drew Goddard? Didn't did he write Cabin in the Woods and he wanted to direct that and then I
0: think so, yeah. Good memory.
1: No, he did direct that in the end, but old mate, what's his name, tried to push it Whedon. Off him. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, um, another interesting one was that um Ifran Khan was the original choice to play the role of Vincent Kapoor. So that's interesting. And eventually then um, uh, she would tell Ijo 4 was cast for the role instead
1: yeah right huh he's a great actor Ifran Khan R.I.P.
0: yeah I agree and Kate Blanchett was apparently Ridley Scott's original choice to play the role of Finder Lewis um, and there would have been a bit of a reunion for those characters after Robin Hood in 2010 but there was a scheduling conflict that old chestnut and the role went to Jessica Chastain instead
1: yeah right there you go huh not much uh, trivia for approaching the unknown <laughs>
0: Yeah, nothing at all. So I think we could uh, move on. All right, okey doke. Uh, oh, we didn't, of course, try and spot the Aussie. Were there any
1: uh, in the Martian? Hmm. I did not see anyone. Did you?
0: No, neither, and nor an approach in Approaching the Unknown. So I think it's a, a dead rubber there. Um, and I also I looked for any you know incidents in terms of marketing madness and. Uh, missteps, but apparently it was all smooth sailing, surprisingly so for movies of this scale. So, yeah, I mean, you hear this pretty often, don't you, with Ridley Scott movies? They're like clockwork. Like, that's right. The guy, I mean, he came under budget for The Martian by $2 million. Like, only Ridley Scott does that. Everyone else goes over budget. He's like, no, I can do this. Like, apparently, he runs a pretty slick machine and sounds like a sort of blockbuster version of Sidney Lumet. Like, everyone does a the schedule, they work hard, play hard. And they move on.
1: I guess that's why he's able to just still crank out a movie a year.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's like 75 or something. Okay, let's jump to the box office. So <laughs> have a guess, Gabe. Have a guess. Which movie was the box office champ?
1: Well, I feel like The Martian probably dominated here. Am I right?
0: <laughs> yeah. So The Martian was amazing. I actually mentioned earlier it was made for about $200 million. I was wrong. It was actually made for a tidy $108 million. Uh, it did- $228.5 million in the States plus $402 million overseas for a worldwide total of $630 million wow. off a $100 million budget. So huge smash, particularly in a time when people often go and see, you know, remake sequels, Marvel, superhero-type movies. Um, pretty impressive for a, again, quote, hard science fiction, unquote, movie. Um, sadly, approaching the unknown which actually was bought after Sundance by Paramount, so a huge studio and vertical entertainment. Uh, I I mentioned the budget earlier, $1.3 million. Tragically, only did uh, a theatrical release in the States only and pulled in $10,000.
1: Yeah, right. I would imagine that would have been on a very small number of screens. Yeah, three
0: screens in New York and LA, I suspect, and then pretty much thrown to VOD straight away. Um, Okay, let's jump to Ron Tomatoes. Which movie impressed the critics, Gabe?
1: Well, my guess is that The Martian got very good reviews and that I think, like I said before, I'll be disappointed that Approaching the Unknown probably was treated a little unfairly, a little harshly.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, The Martian stunningly has 91% on the tomato meter from critics, which Mm -hmm. is pretty remarkable for a $100 million mainstream movie. Unfortunately, approaching the unknown, which again meant Gone to Sundance, which isn't always necessarily a guaranteed badge of endorsement or excellence, but only 43%, which I think is pretty harsh. Mm, It's tough. tough. Uh, It gets worse, though. Audiences for The Martian also have given, given it 91%, which explains why this film is watched over and over and did so well at the box office at the time. But Approaching the Unknown has 14%. Wow. Which is terrible. One of the lowest scores I think we've had. And I think that's really unfair to this movie and to our hero, Mark Strong.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's probably just a movie creating an expectation and then, you know, it's like that uh, the notorious cinema score of F for uh, for a film where you go to see a thing and it's not that thing you thought that thing would be so you get angry at the thing
0: like that woman who sued the producers of the Ryan Gosling movie Drive that's right which she expected to see Fast and the Furious felt misled by the trailer uh, which by the way the trailer did not actually convey Fast and Furious And actually try to sue the filmmakers to get their money back. Who are these people, Gabe? Who are these people?
1: Psychopaths.
0: Exactly. All right, we're on to the awards, Gabe. Are you ready? Are you pumped? Are you excited?
1: Let us blast off.
0: All right, shall we punch it?
1: Into the unknown. Wow. And given that we have a film, (laughs) given that we have one movie with a massive cast and one movie with, like, three actors, I I get the feeling it's going to be quite lopsided, Ben. Yeah,
0: I think we're going to cruise through these awards, so I think The Martian might take it out overall. Let's start with the title, though. There's a chance here for approaching the unknown to score a few points early on before we get to the cast. So, best title?
1: Uh, I'm going to say something controversial. I don't really like either of these titles hugely.
0: Ah, okay. Don't you think The Martian is clever? Because ordinarily you'd associate, you know, a Martian with an alien, and this is like, no, no, he's the first human to colonise Mars... So he's the Martian.
1: At last, after
0: 2,000 years of work, the Illudium Q-36 explosive space modulator.
1: That's pretty clever. Yeah, I guess as you explain it to me that way, it's good. Uh, Maybe it'd be better if the main character's name was like John Martian. (laughs) <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, because that worked out so well for John Carter of Mars, didn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, fair. Look, it's The Martian. The Martian is a better title.
0: Yeah, I feel approaching the unknown is also too generic. Like it sounds like it could be a film set um, in sc- scuba diving world or in a boat or a hiking movie.
1: Well, yeah, you know, That's true. Or as someone who's going to heaven you see. Ah, yeah. But but The Martian could also just be about a Polish guy named Martin. <laughs> like that's just the pronunciation, you know, like who knows, Ben, who knows, but let's give it to The Martian.
0: Okay. Now let's do best poster. Can you describe the posters to our podcast listeners? and If they have certain apps, they can see both posters side by side to choose for themselves. Let's start, Gabe, with The Martian.
1: Okay. So the default IMDb landing page poster is Matt Damon's big old head, in a space visor. What do you call that? A helmet? Space helmet? A astronaut's helmet? Yeah. <laughs> and the, the words bring him home are uh, plastered across his head per the popular poster style of the time. And approaching the unknown? So approaching the unknown is Mark Strong's in a space suit with a sort of Mars planet, I don't know, reflected in it or he's sort of almost like the Star Child from 2001. Um and he's looking in somewhere. I don't know. It's it's not a particularly exciting poster, is it?
0: Well, they're both quite similar. I mean, you get the idea that they're both about uh,
1: pilots alone, mar- astronauts alone. Uh, but
0: you, yeah, name a
1: winner. Well, The Martian, I think, is the the winner. I get a better sense of the drama from The Martian than I do from Approaching the Unknown.
0: Yeah, I mean, The Martian's very much making an excuse to show Matt Damon's big head, as they often do in posters. Uh, because he's a star, but also he's the only star in the sense in the movie. Like he's the one who has to survive by himself. So it's justifiable and it really needs to bring it home to make it clear as to what's going on because otherwise you've got no sense as to whether it's about some, you know, uh, film like The Right Stuff about pilots training. Um, Ooh, great movie. Yeah. I mean I sort of feel there's actually a different poster which would be the reverse of this, which is basically a bit like Gravity where you saw like the – astronauts just floating in space by themselves. Like this could have been just him mm. as a tiny little dot on the horizon and this huge red landscape alone and then just bring it, bring him home. Yeah, right. You get the sense. He, that'd be my alternate poster. But the marketing peeps have to do what the marketing peeps have to do and they know it's Matt Damon, so they've got to make that clear. Fair enough. But I agree. I think, I think the Martian gets it. All right. All right. Let's move on to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So, Gabe, who jumped into the Hollywood big time in either of these movies, starting with The Martian?
1: I don't know if anyone wins this award from either of these movies.
0: Yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, The Martian had a pretty established cast. Everyone had been in something before. Chastain obviously had been in Zero Dark Thirty, Kristen Wiig on SNL, Jeff Daniels on (laughs) everything from the newsroom, right through to um, Dumb and
1: Dumber. The greatest film of all time, Dumb and Dumber. Yep. Yes. I mean,
0: I, no one jumps out. Maybe you could say Askel Henny. He played the character of Axel Vogel. He's a Norwegian actor. I hadn't seen him before. He's been around for quite a bit. But I guess it was a pretty big break for him to be being a big nah. American.
1: But no, no one exploded through, you know, no one like, it's not like, Colin Farrell in Tigerland or something I don't
0: know yeah I agree good yeah it's good good reference uh how about approaching the unknown I mean they're all pretty I mean there are a couple of small actors I mentioned earlier but
1: but no one's talking about Charles Baker you know exactly
0: yeah okay dead rubber next all right moving on the before they were famous award or blink and you'll miss them uh anyone jump out there with the Martian
1: no not not really I didn't I didn't see anyone in a small role who in the last four years has now, you know, it's not like bloody uh, Timothy Chalamet is in there as, you know, Ma- Mark Worsley's son, Mark Watney, Worsley, and Linda McGagley. So...
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Mackenzie Davis, for example, had already been in halt and catch fire uh, beforehand, so she'd already had a few breaks already. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's the same with... Approaching the Unknown as well. Like, yeah. I guess you could say I would give it to the director of Approaching the Unknown.
1: Okay. In fact- Nice, nice.
0: And maybe also you could argue the writer of the original novel of The Martian, Andy Weir. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Good, good. Let's give it to them.
0: Okay. They're going to share it? Yeah, why not? Okay, we're generous. All right. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Still Award, speaking of knots, sharing- Named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in The Fugitive, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with The Martian?
1: Well, look, I get. I think we can skip approaching the unknown. It's going to be someone from The Martian, isn't it? Yeah. Like, to be fair, to be fair. Um, I thought Donald Glover was really good. I think he's got about two two scenes. Yeah, I agree. He did a lot with a little. Yeah, math genius guy who wears a scarf and falls over. Yep. All nice choices. Yep. Um Look, that's that's my. I'm gonna hit you. That's my nominee. Or, or Benedict Wong, who is like the head of the. Oh yeah. Does he? He works for the the, the Chinese NASA.
0: No, he's the, he's the American NASA.
1: Oh, is he? Oh, that's yeah. That's probably borderline probo that I just threw him in with the Chinese NASA. No,
0: no, he no he, he's definitely American. But he befriends the Chinese NASA when they. That's right. Join them later on, of course, yeah. of
1: course. Um, anyway, he's great. I always like it when he pops up. You know. In a movie.
0: Okay. Uh Ooh. Okay. Let's give it to Donald Gulliver. Done.
1: Okay, sweet.
0: Okay. Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Gabe, who didn't make the most of their opportunities, starting with The Martian?
1: It's 2015. It's a bit bit hard to know, isn't it, don't you think?
0: I'd say, yeah. I mean, I saw people like Mackenzie Davis who did kick on, I mean, getting a lead role in um, the Terminator film Dark Fate uh, and it was also great in that Black Mirror episode. But, yeah, I don't think anyone – I mean, I would say potentially – why hasn't the director of Approaching the Unknown done more, Mark, Elijah Rosenberg? It's only been four years and it takes a long time for often film people to get films up. But I'm surprised he's not doing more TV, just a couple of episodes of TV here and there. Like he has done less than what you would hope for given, you know, the potential scope of, you know, cashing in your uh, Sundance chips.
1: Yeah. It's always tough to tell isn't it? Like, he could have any number of things in development. He could be, a you know, attached to all kinds of bits and pieces.
0: And just experience bad luck.
1: Exactly. Who knows? But you're right. You're right. Even just to pop in for a, and directed a few episodes of, I don't know, that Hillary Swank space TV show, Away. Yeah, perfect example. Or the Sean Penn space TV show, Sean Penn in space, whatever that's called, Leathery Cigarette Smoker.
0: Or the one that has, uh, who's the guy that played uh, Deadshot or whatever? Not Deadshot. The guy, uh, Captain Flag or something from-
1: Captain Flag.
0: <laughs> it's a Captain Flag? What's that film?
1: You know, um, The
0: Suicide Squad. Joel Kinnaman. Joel Kinnaman.
1: Ah, uh, yeah.
0: He's an Apple TV series as well, a space series.
1: Oh, is he? About space. Ah, oh, wow. They're just cranking him out. And then there's the Steve Carell space one. It's a comedy. And then the the John C. Riley comedy, space. It's so hot right now.
0: It's so hot. Okay. Uh, let's give it, unfortunately, to Mark, but we're rooting for him. All right. Go, go. The winner-winner, chicken dinner award. Who came out on top, starting with The Martian?
1: Well, The Martian came out on top, didn't it?
0: Yeah, but which person in The Martian? I would say Matt Damon killed it, and I also thought uh, really did a great job, despite, by the way, almost plagiarising his own score uh, from Alien and uh, Prometheus. But, yeah, I'd be looking at Matt Damon, but, yeah, so many good standouts as well, like Jeff Daniels. How about you?
1: Yeah, I reckon – Matt Damon, because I think that in 2015, you know, leading up to there, things might have been just slightly tougher for Matt Damon. Movies like We Bought a Zoo and Promised Land um, weren't really kind of landing, you know, his big budget things, The Adjustment Bureau, no one particularly liked that. Like he was still in good movies, don't get me wrong. Like True Grit is still very good. Um, um, but you know, Elysium, bit of a bit of a flop. Monuments Men, bit of a flop. So I think The Martian put him back on top in terms of recapturing sort of that, you know, mid two thousands box office power. So Matt Damon gets it for me.
0: Yeah, okay, I agree. All right. And was he up against anyone from Approaching the Unknown? He was not. I mean, I'd say the director. Yeah, sure. I did well. Or Mark Strong.
1: Well, Mark Strong, uh, you know, higher. yeah, no, but not compared to the to the Matt Damon. Yeah,
0: um, let's give it Matt Damon done uh, best dialogue award. What's your favorite quote? I think we know the answer here, and not even worth approaching the unknown. Uh, oh, oh. Oh, no, sad. What's the what's the expression, go? What's the line?
1: The sciencing the shit. Is that the one you want?
0: Yeah, and you delivered it so well just then. Thank you.
1: Uh, well, okay, well,
0: you, you do it better, Ben. No, no, I can't. I can't. I, okay. I, th- I think let science th- this. I can't even say it. What's the line?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we let, uh, this is how it actually sounds. In the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. <laughs> yeah, I thought mine was better. All right. Just uh, uh, to, 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 to be fair to approaching the unknown, one of the quotes that's up on IMDb, which is, our bodies are more space than matter. There's an unfathomable distance between each atom, each particle. What keeps us solid? Why don't we dissolve? I mean- Oh,
0: I actually was conscious of those lines as I heard them in the movie and thought they were great.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it raises a good question. Why aren't I dissolving, Ben?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Uh, The Martian, I would put forward Jeff Daniels. I like him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's really kind of leaning into I'm the bad you know, suit in the situation, I thought, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but still a good performance. Maybe Kristen Wiig. Actually, I'd give it to Kristen Wiig.
1: You? Uh, I think both of those are fair nominees for The Martian. For approaching the unknown, I would say latter half Mark Strong once he's wearing a little hat and grown a beard. He's going for it a bit there. (laughs) <laughs> all right.
0: Mark Strong gets it. Uh, the Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself, The Martian.
1: Well, Jay. I'm sure all of these people got paid. When you're Ridley Scott and you've got the budget you've got, no wonder you can stack your cast with great actors. Exactly. You know, uh, just having like Kate Mara and Sebastian Stan and, you know, um, in tiny Michael roles. Peña. Yeah. It's like, wow. Nice.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's when you've got a great film like The Martian is. It's hard to give someone this award because they got a paycheck but you often associate a paycheck with someone basically slumming it like those Bruce Willis films or Nick Cage films that go straight to video on demand. Whereas you're taking a paycheck and you're in two scenes but you're in a great movie, power to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, maybe Sana Lathan got well paid for her one day on set for approaching the unknown. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Okay.
0: Um, All right. I think we'll have to call it one of Dead Rubber. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Hey, it's that guy. Um, Starting with The Martian. Any recognizable faces?
1: I mean, I guess this is this is a lot of them. I mean, Michael Pena could be Hey, it's that guy. I mean, I love Michael Pena so goddamn much. And it just depends on how you know, like, is can can we have a Hey It's That Guy for a guy who was, say, the co lead in a movie like Chips? You know, or can end he of be- watch? Yeah, can he be behave- hey or is he grown out of hey it's that guy?
0: Yeah, or the guy that was Ant-Man's mate. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I think he's probably too famous to be, hey, it's that guy. Someone more like uh, Eddie Ko. Oh, yeah. From Chinese NASA. NASA. I'd put someone more in that category myself. Um yeah. But, yeah, there aren't that many. I mean, for some people, Sean Bean.
1: Like. The- yeah, totally. I mean, very famously is the guy who gets killed off in everything. Rah, 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 yeah, exactly. Meme, you know. Yeah. But I, I reckon – The winner of this could, in fact, be Mark Strong. He has a massive hate-to-that-guy vibe, right?
0: Yeah. I reckon so many people see him, and you and I are a bit biased. We know and appreciate Mark Strong more than the average Joe, and we love him. But for many people, he's the bald guy with a strong jawline who pops up in films like Sherlock Holmes or as a supporting character in a film like Sunshine.
1: Yeah, but he became super ubiquitous in what, like the early- I guess early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of spy movies. Oh, yeah. Like he was in – because he played a lot of um, uh, Middle Eastern blokes for a while there. He did. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, that one with Leonardo DiCaprio where he's got a funny wig. Um,
0: Body of Liars?
1: Yeah, that one. Yeah. But goddamn it. It's great whenever he turns up in stuff. I'm always just so pleased. He has a
0: great look that he can actually – play different nationalities and you just buy it. Yeah. Like very international it sense. A bit like that a actor from Whale Rider, the Maori actor Oh Cliff Curtis. Cliff Curtis. Like I wonder if Mark Strong and Cliff Curtis ever been in a movie together. God. They'd be a great combination. Great combination.
1: That that would make me dissolve.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, I think Mark Strong gets it. Uh, the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. The Martian. Who?
1: Who do we think's not cast enough?
0: I'm surprised I didn't see Jeff Daniels in more. Um, I think he's cast enough. I'm just surprised he's not cast in more. Um hmm. I would I mean, I think she would Tell, a judge of Four is amazing, but he's cast in quite a lot. Um I don't think there's anyone really. I mean, I, I I might say Mark Strong, but he gets cast a lot as well. So yeah, totally. We might be looking at no winner for this award.
1: I think you're right. No winner here.
0: All right, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by Nick Cage's absurdly named character from Gone in sixty Seconds. Were there any wacky names, Gabe, in either of these
1: movies? Well, the Martians are all pretty. The Martians, the Martian, all pretty standard stock names, I guess. In Approaching the Unknown, we've got. A character with a nickname Skinny, but that's not really enough, is it?
0: No, it is. weird he's called Skinny? Because Luke Wilson is not, and I don't sort of understand that choice. Like, it doesn't really add anything to the character to call him Skinny. So,
1: no, nah. it sort of it sort of bothered me that Mark Strong's character was named William D Stanforth, and I thought just call him Stanforth. Yeah, I agree. What's this extra dang A in there? I agree. So yeah. that's the best we're gonna yeah. do here. I think. All
0: right, I think we give it to Skinny. Okay, the Memento Ward. Now, we hadn't seen Approaching the Unknown, but any particular scenes that we'd completely forgot about in The Martian until we rewatched this for the, you know, fourth time or so.
1: Not not really. Did anything really pop for you go, oh, wow, I couldn't remember that at all? No, nothing
0: jumped out to me at all. I mean, most beats. This film's quite sequential and I was quite invested, so I remember most of it. I'd forgotten about that part where he kind of like cries when he first hears Jessica Chastain's voice. Oh, yeah. um, that, that's kind of quite emotional. It's a part where he basically breaks where he's about to take off and he realises this is it. Like mm. this is going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to survive, but they're here for me. That was quite overwhelming, I thought.
1: Yeah, right. So you'd forgotten the emotional climax of the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <right. I> just, <laughs> I've only cried at that point. That's all. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Fair. All right. Okay, the Die Hard Award, um, named after the influence of Die Hard in inspiring its own subgenre. Gabe, did any of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of
1: clones? Uh, I don't think, I don't feel like these will either be the first nor last movies that take us to Mars, either with some science or some philosophy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there should be more Robinson Crusoe type movies, though. Like, I'm surprised there aren't more films like. The Martian, like Castaway, like Robinson Crusoe, where mm. you know you get back to those basics. Like it's a great premise for a low-budget movie, and actors love showing off their chops and gaining weight and you know losing weight and growing a beard and all sorts of shenanigans. So I am surprised there aren't more movies like that, perhaps based on real-life characters, like you know totally. an adventurer in the Himalayas or something like that. Totally. All right, Gabe, we're in the uh, final stretch. Let's bring it home. It's the. Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then relocated to a sluggish, boring, slow cruise ship. So imagine this, Gabe. Let's say the opportunity to make a sequel to The Martian or Approach of the Unknown. They're both about an astronaut who uses science to stay alive when everything is going wrong on a doomed mission to Mars. Well, here we are, we've got an executive across the road at a big Hollywood studio. Which film? Do we make a sequel to, and what's our pitch to make it?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, given the box office success of The Martian, I mean, surely there was probably some sort of discussion about could they even do a Martian 2, don't you think? Oh, I'm
0: sure so. I, I think basically it often comes back to Ridley Scott saying, I only want to do sequels to certain movies, like he obviously loves to do the alien movies and has tried to explore artificial intelligence, ironically, in an alien movie and not a Blade Runner movie. But... He's often known for not making sequels and kind of, you know, kind of pissing on someone else doing it as well. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I don't know. I mean, The Martian, where does this go afterwards? I mean, they're both very similar movies. Approaching the Unknown, I guess, you theoretically could do a sequel to because he just landed on the moon. Oh, sorry, on Mars. So, there's a story that can unfold there like The
1: Martian, basically. I mean, yeah, that's right. As you say that, it's basically the sequel to Approaching the Unknown, assuming that it wasn't a metaphysical uh, journey of, you know, rumination um, and he actually arrived at Mars would in fact be The Martian.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're right. So I don't think we'll pitch that. No. And let's face it, this film made $10,000 at the box office and Mark Strong isn't as famous as, you know, the other cast, even though we love Mark Strong. So let's just be creative here. We're being having our arm twisted, they want to pitch for a sequel to The Martian, how do we do it?
1: Well, surely Mark Watney is not dumb enough to go and get himself stuck in space again.
0: Ah, well, here's here's the thing. Okay, yes, yes. What if, for example, he's now that he's back on Earth, and we've seen this in other movies before, where someone survives a tragedy, they return. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly their life can't be the same. It's boring in comparison because that experience shaped, forged them, scarred them and they got what they finally wanted, but was it what they wanted after all? And let's say he's now called up as a survivor of Mars to head a rescue trip to save other people.
1: Yeah, right, so it's aliens, you know, or...
0: Yeah, aliens, or it's like gravity, you know, like he's got to go up there and it's like no one else can do this but him. And it was like, why would you go back there? And he's like, because that's my new normal.
1: Yeah, right. So has Jessica Chastain and her ship now found themselves in 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 a crisis and he's like, "Well, they saved me. It's my turn to return the favor." Is it that that formulaic?
0: Well, I think at the end of The Martian, Jessica Chastain's on the treadmill, isn't she? So she's basically retired it seems. But Michael Penner, he's love and life baby and he's on the next uh I think it's a Chinese American co-production. Blasting to space!
1: Wow, not unlike the sequel of to this movie.
0: <laughs> exactly. What do you What do you mean?
1: A Chinese American. Well, this will be a Chinese American co production. Oh, exactly, because, exactly. Because we want them budget bucks.
0: Exactly. So I'm thinking Michael Penn is in space. The question is, do they discover aliens, which makes this less sci-fi, or is it something similar to Gravity, where things just go wrong?
1: Yeah, and I guess you don't want to do that thing where it's just. Another group of people surviving on Mars and just you know uh, growing potatoes out of shit again. So maybe there's a way to take the fun, you know, sciencing the shit out of an idea and making it so, you know, they have to figure out a way how to grow potatoes in a in a vacuum of space. You know, um, can it be set just just you know just in space or something like 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 we we surely can't just be repeating the same beats, can we?
0: Yeah, that's a problem. I agree. I mean, everyone loved the first film because he, you know, science the shit out of his survival. So either we do that and he's on Earth and he goes on a, you know, sailing on a catamaran to try and find excitement and then gets shipwrecked and has to try and survive by sciencing the shit out of coconuts on an island, like Gilligan's Island, or he goes into space, it's gravity style, stakes are high, but rather than growing potatoes, he's just trying to like, you know, use a pocket knife and try and manufacture, you know, an escape vehicle and so on. It doesn't sound very interesting. It sounds very similar to films like Interstellar and all sorts of other movies. So I don't know. I feel like that's the natural angle to take the pitch, but I'm not getting excited by it at all. Uh,
1: What about about if we set it, you know, 100 years from now and, I mean, obviously Matt Damon can't be in it as Mark Watney because he'd be 137 years old, but is there a way to have it so that like colonies have sort of started being built on Mars, but something goes wrong and like aliens, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like in a way, and in the same way that aliens up to the stakes, look, we're not putting aliens in on Mars, but like, if it's a group of people. So whereas the first one is one guy having to do resource management, this is now a group of people having to make tough decisions. Um, and maybe you could lean into some really tough decisions, you know, like there's only so many poop potatoes enough to feed not enough people and they have to make, you know, hard choices around does someone have to walk out into like the ion storm and sacrifice themselves or something, you know, just to maybe just dial up the 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 drama that way.
0: Yeah, I like that. I mean, we've seen you could also have also, you know, microscopic aliens like we saw, I think it was in – Whatever film Tom Sizemore's in, I think it's Red Planet. Yeah, yeah. Where basically perhaps they're drilling, for example, and they discover water, but they also discover some sort of infection or something like that. Mm. And essentially they have to make choices like films like Alive, that film where the plane crashes and there's that risk of people cannibalizing each other where it's like the Robinson Crusoe situation, outbeat with more people. And what happens? It all goes Lord of the Flies, people form allegiances, they don't trust each other. They think for themselves. And so it's less about the the best of us but the worst of us.
1: Yeah, I'd quite like to see that sort of a movie, which in, I guess does things that you see in other movies like, you know, I think Sunshine, for instance, that we mentioned before that Mark Strong is in, does a pretty good job of setting the characters up with an escalating series of tough scientific and moral choices. But ultimately they're also trying to save the world by restarting the sun. I quite like the idea of a... Martian sequel which has a group of people but they're not really, they're not out there trying to save the world, you know, you don't have that kind of you know mega plot mechanism and it's just how can they survive on the planet um, it's, it's terrible because we always make this joke but in a way it is the Martians
0: Exactly, exactly, uh, it's basically Sunshine set on Mars essentially uh, where things do go wrong, smart people make dumb choices and uh, start suffering from space dementia, like Mark Strong.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and you know, if it was imbued with a the 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 hard science, I'd I'd find that quite interesting. You know, if there was really unexpected sort of twists and you know moral complications, I guess that's what this one could hit really hard. Like some of the really really tough choices around what's essentially resource management. Um, um, so basically the
0: title for this movie is The Martian, colon, resource management.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, I, uh, as someone who likes, you know, isometric strategy games or whatever, I, I do enjoy a bit of resource management.
0: And so what's our ending? How do we bring it home?
1: Well, whomstever is left. <laughs>
0: one person survives? Is it like Sunshine, for example, where someone's under Mark Strong and gone crazy uh, with space dementia? He's got space dementia. And at the end, one person survives. Do they get off Mars or do they have to basically start things from scratch? So the third film will be something like The Martian.
1: (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think... The circle of life. I think because we're trying to do sort of realism and stuff, you know, more than one person can survive and I don't think we need any space meanies to arrive or anything like that. But, yeah, you know, like maybe there can be some sort of dust storm or something. But, But, yeah... I don't know. I think. I think. I think the added complication of just having more people, more mouths to feed, more air that needs to breathe could be interesting.
0: Okay. And what's our title? The Martian.
1: Yeah. God, we can't go a single episode without making that fucking joke, but here it actually applies. All right, the Martians. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Let's just go. We'll just look. We'll just. We'll just put that and then in in parentheses, working title.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And that's how we make a sequel to the. Ridley Scott, Matt Damon vehicle, that was a smash, The Martian. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so fantastic. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Insta. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week?
1: On Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick,
0: And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you find this pod and all the others in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your mates and spread the word. Gabe, take care, bud. And uh, I look forward to another ep of Twin Movies very soon.
1: Thanks, Ben. I thought it would be distracting having those radio sounds uh, that Sam added between every single time we talked to each other to simulate the vastness of space. But in the end, it kind of worked. I agree. Shh. Next Gabe. Over and out, Gabe. Shhh. Bleep, bleep, bleep.
0: Blue, blue, bleep, bleep. <laughs> bleep, bleep, bleep.